At this time, I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 38. Genesis chapter 30, 38, as we make our way through the book of Genesis, considering the final and longest portion of the book, the generations of Jacob, where we consider his sons, uh, but especially two of his sons, Joseph and Judah. And we come to chapter 38, where we're going to focus on the life of Judah. And so I'd like to read to us today the entire chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezev when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, was, Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So, whether, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother's. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the colt prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, 
by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray, O Lord, that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would convict us of our sins, that you would drive us to Christ, that we would have faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved of the Lord, Thomas Jefferson is famous for having a Bible where he literally cut out all of the instances in the Gospels of the miracles of our Lord, including the four Gospels' accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he called that Bible the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Thomas Jefferson did this because he was a deist, and he believed that God did not interact in the world in a supernatural manner. And so since he had that prejudice, he felt free to to cut and excise from Scripture anything that offended him. Well, in so doing, and especially in removing the account of the resurrection of our Lord, he struck at the heart of the gospel and made what we know as good news ultimately as bad news. You see, Thomas Jefferson serves as a warning for all of us that we cannot pick and choose what portions of God's word to keep and which ones to get rid of. Indeed, all of this is God's word to us, and as Christ told us, it all testifies of him. I doubt any of us here would want to get rid of the miracles of Scripture or deny the resurrection of our Lord, but perhaps if there was any passage in Scripture, if there was any portion where maybe the page of our Bible ripped out, and we could probably be just as fine if it wasn't there, it would be this passage here. Even commentators highlight the fact that Genesis chapter 38 seems to stick out like a sore thumb in the rest of the narrative that we're reading. As we saw at the end of chapter 37, we saw Joseph go down to Egypt, and then chapter 39 picks right up where they left off, and we we consider the story of Joseph again. It seems as if this passage is is an interruption in in the story we all like to hear, the story of Joseph. Well, indeed, as we've been reminded many times, this is the generations of Jacob. We're not hearing just the story of Joseph, but we are hearing the story, the tale of two sons, Joseph, as well as his older brother, Judah. And so here, this story that we read of, of the life of Judah, takes place right on the heels of Joseph being sold as a slave into Egypt. And this chapter covers a period of roughly 20 years Um, and gives a glimpse of Judah's life 
All the while, Joseph was down in Egypt, in, in, in Potiphar's house and in the prison, and then ultimately being elevated to the second in command of Egypt. Well, remember, it was Judah's cold and calculating plan in the first place that got Joseph sold as a slave down into Egypt. And as we hear more, as we get more of a portrait of the life of Judah, indeed, we're not all that impressed. He continues along this trajectory of sin and error and cold and calculating ruthlessness. And so his life, Judah's life at this point, serves as a very stark contrast to the life of Joseph, as we'll see even in the next chapter. And, and yet, the insertion of this story, as we pause and take a break, knowing that Joseph is sold as a slave down in Egypt, but making us wait until we find out what happens later, it ultimately builds suspense. So it creates a stark, a stark contrast, but also creates suspense for the listener. Well, our story picks up, uh, as I said, it, it says it happened at that time, that is the time shortly after Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt, that Judah went down from his brothers, that is, he left the covenant community to dwell amongst the Canaanites in Adullam. We read that Judah went down, now assuming that they were still residing in Hebron, which is some 3,000 feet above sea level, it would, it would literally involve a descent to go down to this Canaanite city. But yet again, I think we're, we're hearing not just of a physical descent, but also a spiritual descent. As Judah leaves the covenant community, he leaves the, 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 the community that God is at work in to go dwell amongst the Canaanites. And he becomes fast friends with a certain Adulamite by the name of Hira, who plays a crucial role later in the chapter. And we read that he marries a Canaanite woman who's unnamed for us, although we're told of her father's name, that is Shua. And the nature in which he interacts with this woman, we read in, verse, uh, in, in the opening verses that he took her and went into her. Now, this does not suggest a very romantic or purposeful engagement, rather one that is based upon lust and impulse. And it seems to be that this is exactly how Judah is operating at this point in his life. That's his MO. He's operating upon lust and impulse. Further, for Judah to take a Canaanite woman to be his wife flies right in the face of the practice of his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all went out of their way uh, to get a wife that was not a Canaanite, but rather uh, to, to get one uh, to get a wife in Padam Aram. And so his actions are very similar to the actions of his uncle, Esau, who married the Canaanite women and made life miserable for his parents. And so in rapid succession in verses 3 through 5, we read that Judah's wife bore him three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And it's at this point in these opening verses of our passage that we see Judah fully immersed in Canaanite culture. He has rejected the covenant community and become one with the world. Well, over the course of time, fast-forwarding to the time in which Judah's firstborn son is old enough to get married, we, find, we see that Judah finds a wife for his son, a woman by the name of Tamar. Now, presumably, even though we're not told explicitly, presumably she too is a Canaanite woman since she's living in that region as well. But we read that Ur was wicked in the sight of the Lord in verse 7. It's interesting, in Hebrew, Ur is evil spelled backwards. 
and it seems like he lives up to his name. Although we are not told exactly the nature of his offense, nor the exact nature of his death, we are told explicitly that it was the Lord who put him to death as a result of his sin. And this is actually the first time we read of such an event happening in Scripture. This is the first time we read of God putting someone to death immediately because of their sin. And yet, although this is the first time, this shouldn't surprise us. Remember Genesis 2, verse 17, the Lord warned Adam, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. You see, it's only because of the long-suffering and patience and forbearance of the Lord that he doesn't put all of us to death the moment we sin. And yet here, er, as an example, is being put to death by the Lord because of his wickedness was so great. Well, having the firstborn, his firstborn son die and die childless, Judah now goes to his secondborn son, Onan, and he tells him to do the duty of a brother-in-law. Now, this may seem a bit foreign to us. We do not have this custom today. But what's being referred to here is the custom of leveret marriage that was common throughout the ancient Near East. This custom, which later on is enshrined in the law, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, uh, is summarized thus. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duties of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And so this custom, which, as I said, is enshrined in the law in Deuteronomy 25, was a very common cu uh, custom, custom even amongst the Canaanites of their day. And that's why Judah tells Onan to do this. And at first, he seems to comply. He takes Tamar to be his wife, and yet knowing that a son, the firstborn son from that union, would not be considered his own, we see that he refused to fully consummate the relationship. You see, with his older brother being dead, Onan is now the eldest son, and thus the heir of the double portion. And so here we see a little motivation on his part that he does not want this son to become his rival. You see, that son born of that union would have claim to being the heir uh, of, of the firstborn. And so he did not want to jeopardize his claim of the firstborn right. And so he wastes his seed on the ground. And we read that what he did in verse 10 was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Not only was this a failure to honor the memory of his brother and to provide a child for his uh, widowed sister-in-law, Tamar, but it also violates God's express command in Scripture to be fruitful and multiply. This is something we've heard countless times already in the book of Genesis. He tells his people to be fruitful and to multiply. Most notably, he said that to Jacob back in chapter 35. You see, at this phase in redemptive history, the Lord is building his church primarily through procreation. 
primarily through procreation. You see, he's in the process of turning this family into a nation. And so he tells them and blesses them, be fruitful and multiply. You see, Onan's selfish refusal to continue this process and to promote the seed of the woman shows, in fact, that he, is, he was, in fact, a seed of the serpent. And thus, he met his demise. So with the second son now being put to death by the Lord, we see Judah go to his daughter-in-law, And rather than stopping to consider at this point that perhaps it was the wickedness of his sons that was the cause of their death, we see Judah immediately assume that Tamar was the culprit. Perhaps he's assuming it's something she has in her cooking, right? It's probably this this story in Scripture that inspires the the hypothetical story that the Sadducees tell our Lord where where the one woman ends up marrying seven brothers, and uh, then they ask, which one of, whose, whose wife is she going to be in heaven, right? It's, uh, you have to wonder at this point, what is Tamar cooking? Or perhaps Judah's being superstitious. Maybe she, he thinks that she's bad luck. But at the end of the day, he thinks she's the problem, not, her son, not his sons. And not wanting his third son to meet the same demise as his first two sons, having only one son left, he tells her to wait a while until he comes of age. He puts her on ice, and yet we are told explicitly that he has no intention of fulfilling that promise. You see, at this point, you must feel really sorry for Tamar. It's a very pathetic case, twice widowed, childless woman, and now relegated to her father's house with no prospect of future marriage. You see, she's, she's betrothed to Sheila. And so she's not free to remarry. And so it's a very sad case for Tamar, even though she obediently, she obeys her father-in-law and she goes back to her her father's house and puts on the garments of her widowhood. In the course of time, we read in verse 12, according to our timeline, it couldn't be much more than a year later, we read that Judah experiences yet another death in his family. This time, his Canaanite wife has died. And yet in the same verse, we read that he was comforted after the death of his wife. You see, Judah's relatively brief mourning process for his wife, and uh, no mourning process for his sons, that is mentioned at least, is in stark contrast to his father Jacob, who is still in mourning for the loss of his son Joseph, whom he has presumed to be dead. And also in stark contrast to Tamar, who's relegated to wearing her widow garments, having to mourn the death of both of her previous husbands. You see, Judah seems to move right on. And it's also the death of his wife that seems to explain his actions later on in the scene. That's why Judah seems to feel single and ready to mingle. So Judah and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, now go to his sheep shears down in Timnah. Now, sheep shearing, which typically takes place at the beginning of spring, was a time where rich men who had lots of sheep, for them not only to, to work, uh, to shear the sheep and to collect the wool, but from also what we can tell from Scripture, this was also a time to party. Uh, what we can tell, for example, from 1 Samuel 25 or 2 Samuel 13, copious amounts of alcohol would be drunk during these sheep shearing parties. And it seems like Judah and his friend start the party early as they make their way down to Timnah. It's this point that Tamar gets word 
that her father-in-law is going down to Timna to his sheep shears. And at this point, she reacts. Knowing that Sheila was now grown up and rightly perceiving that Judah will never make good on his word, she devises a bold and audacious plan. We're told that she took off the widows of her garments, she covered herself with a veil, she wrapped herself up in disguise, and sat down at the entrance of a city on the way to Timna. And at first we might wonder, what on earth is she doing? We're not told explicitly what her actions are, but when Judah sees her, he knows immediately what she was up to. For indeed, we told, we're told in verse 15 that as soon as he saw her, he thought and assumed that she was a prostitute. And thus he falls right into the trap that, she, that, uh, that Tamar devised. Not one to beat around the bush, Judah immediately goes up and propositions her, not knowing, of course, her true identity, not knowing that this was his daughter-in-law who was concealed by the veil. And while they negotiate the price, which as it turns out is one goat, Tamar shrewdly gets Judah to surrender his signet, his cord, and his staff. These were things that were carried by men of status that were engraved with identifying marks. They would use them not only to show their identity, but also to conduct business. For Tamar to get these things, uh, to, for Tamar to get Judah to surrender these things to her would be comparable to a man in the present day to leave his driver's license and credit cards in a brothel. And so she shrewdly is able to take advantage of Judah. He surrenders these things, negotiations being done. We read that he went into her, and Tamar conceived a child. At long last, the third time is the charm for Tamar. This is all she set out to do. This is what she wanted to do, was finally just to be able to conceive a child. Because right after this, we read she put right back on her widow's, or her, her, her widow's garments. And although we certainly should not condone the actions of Tamar, we must rightly understand her motives. You see, the primary role of women in the ancient world was to bear children. It afforded them not only a status, but also security later in life. You see, childless widows were the most disadvantaged in all of society. And so Tamar wants nothing more, desperately, nothing more than to just have a child. And although her actions, her methods are not to be condoned, her desire is good. And her desire is in stark contrast to her, second, to her second husband, Onan, who refused to procreate. Well, getting back to our story, we read sometimes, sometime later, shortly thereafter, Judah sent his friend Hira the Adolamite to do the delicate and embarrassing task of paying a prostitute and to recover his signet cord and staff. You see, then as now, there is shame involved in this type of practice, and rightly so. And we see that Judah is concerned with his reputation. So he sends his friend Hira to do the dirty business. And we see that Hira, upon uh, going back to Enayim and searching for her, cannot find the prostitute. He asks the men of the city, and they say, there's no prostitute here. 
And so he comes back to Judah, scratching his head, saying, I couldn't find her. And after, uh, after hearing this news, we see that Judah, rather than pursuing this further, he decides to write it off as a loss, lest his name be dragged through the mud. Uh, not knowing at the time that this story would be recorded for all of per- perpetuity for every single person to read in Holy Scripture. You've got to appreciate the irony. But about three months later, we read in verse 24, when the signs of pregnancy of Tamar began to show, we read that Judah learned by hearsay that Tamar was pregnant. This is not to happen for a woman who is a widow in her father's house. And in one of the most glaring examples of rank hypocrisy in all of Scripture, we read that Judah immediately sentenced her to death by burning. You see, he, sentenced, he, 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 command, he, he condemns her for the very action that he just did, not knowing that he was the one who did it. And as pregnant Tamar is being dragged out into the square to be burned to death, she launches the final phase of her plan. And not a second too late, she produces the evidence. And she says, the one who owns this is the father. And then she sends it to her father-in-law. And she says, please identify these things. If that sounds familiar, it's because it should. In the, very, in, the, in the previous chapter, this is the same exact thing that Judah and his brothers said to their father, Jacob, as they sent Joseph's blood-stained cloak to him. Please identify these things. And so in the same way that Jacob, who had once deceived his father, was being deceived now by his sons, so Judah is reaping what he sowed. It's coming around upon him. The deceiver is now deceived as he's asked to identify his cord, his signet, and his staff. And as soon as he sees these things, he makes a confession. He says, she is more righteous than I. You see, Judah begins at this point to realize that he had been duped, and he begins to see for the first time, perhaps, the greatness of his sin and misery. He confesses that his sin was greater than Tamar's since he withheld his son from her. And he calls the execution off. It's interesting, the next time we'll see Judah in Scripture, he's a changed man. Reunited with his brothers, expressing remorse over his past actions towards Joseph, even offering himself as collateral for his younger brother Benjamin. Judah is changed. And I think it's right here that we can mark that change. When he makes that confession that she is more righteous than he is, when he admits his fault, I think this is the beginning of the change in his life, which we will see later on in the book. Well, fast forwarding to the end of the pregnancy, six months later, we find that Tamar is in fact having not one but two. She's pregnant with twins. The gift of twins replaces the two sons that Judah lost at the beginning of the chapter and also is a double portion for Tamar as a mother. And the fact that she is having twins should remind us of something. In fact, it should remind us of Rebecca, who is pregnant with twins. And it signals for us 
that something special is happening here with this line. Something special is happening with these two sons of Judah. It also serves as another opportunity for God's purpose of election to stand, where he sovereignly and graciously chooses one over the other. And as with the story of Jacob and Esau, who were struggling for dominance even within the womb, coming out of the womb, with Jacob grabbing his brother's heel, so here we see these twins struggling to be the first one born. And there's this remarkable instance where we read that, that the hand of one of the twins came out and the midwife tied a scarlet thread to say, this is going to be the firstborn. And yet that hand is drawn back. And the other baby somehow is able to be born first. So the, so the younger, as it were, is overcoming the older. And, that, and this brother is the one who ultimately will, the brother Perez is the one who will start a line that will end up somewhere very important. In conclusion, we must ask the question, what do we do as Christians living in the 21st century? What do we do with a passage like this? Where the most righteous person is one who posed as a prostitute. It's interesting that Judah used that term, righteous. We're just saying in the Psalms that God loves the righteous. It's righteousness that God ultimately demands for those to enter into his presence. And yet Judah says, I'm not righteous enough. And as I said, the most righteous person in this passage was a woman who posed as a prostitute. I think that highlights for us the need for one who embodies perfect righteousness. One, about all, uh, one of whom we can all say he is more righteous than I. One who perfectly obeys God's law, whose righteousness can be ours through faith in Him. In, in one of the most remarkable displays of the grace of God in Scripture, the Lord was pleased to use this line, the line of Judah, through Tamar, through Perez, to bring about our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the righteous one who comes from the unrighteous. As we read in Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of Matthew, the book of the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and so on and so forth until we get to our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, if you, take, if you take Genesis 38 out of your Bible, you need to take Matthew chapter 1 out of your Bible. And the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ was pleased to be born with such a pedigree of sinful people is consistent with the fact that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Amen?